Many years have passed since a fellowship of light battled the shadow creature at the Grey Haven. Now the heroes find themselves in an unknown land where they discover a man in black is wreaking havoc. Undeath follows him wherever he goes, and long-forgotten legends rise again having been possessed by his evil. Join the players of this Dungeons & Dragons campaign as they attempt to stop the man in black as he collects artifacts both on and off the Lonely Isle. Welcome to Tolerasia in part two of the Inglorian Bastards trilogy, Rise of the Mormon. Alright, welcome everyone to another episode of the Inglorian Bastards campaign. Um, for episode 74, we have with us the third installment of our language series. Um, we we were fortunate enough to, to talk to Paul and Fiona about Quenya and Sindarin. Um, and tonight, um, we're going to talk with an expert in philology. Um, so with us tonight, I have James Tauber. He is a... Um, um, he, he, well, what he is, is, is a kind of a Renaissance man, but, um, he is, uh, he has studied both classics and philology and linguistics. Um, he studied ancient Greek, um, and I'll let him talk more about sort of his credentials if he wants to, but, um, I had the opportunity to, to hear him speak at a, a recent, uh, Signum University, uh, New England moot. Um, and he presented on uh, Tolkien and digital philology, um, which was a, I, I think, a, kind of a, it mirrored his talk that he did at the uh, Tolkien conference uh, this summer in Birmingham. So uh, welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you very much. Um, so, so what we're trying to get out of tonight, get out of this session tonight, is is to really understand uh, philology, digital philology. What the heck is it? How does it how does it differ from you know the study of linguistics and literature? Um, how does Tolkien fit in into all of this? Um, but maybe you want to start just by telling us a little bit um, anything that I didn't cover, a little background on yourself, and sort of how you got into this. Sure. So um, I do have a quite unusual uh, background to all this. Uh, my day job um, is actually uh, running a software company. I, I uh, develop software, but that's actually um, recently become related to all of the philology and digital philology stuff that I do. I write software that relates to all this stuff as well, so it's not, not completely independent. Um, but my interests... It's interesting because um, it's one of those things where I look back at various things in my life and realize that they were setting me up to where I eventually ended up, even if I wasn't aware of it at the time. And for me, I ended up majoring in linguistics at, at, in undergrad um, at university. And uh, I, I didn't plan to do that when I was in high school. Uh, but once I'd discovered linguistics and, and fallen in love with it and, and chosen it as my, as my major and what I wanted to pretty much do for the rest of my life, um, I looked back and realized that there'd been so many seeds planted uh, in the past. And two of the really big seeds um, were talking and my love of, of, of talking and, and my fascination with uh, the Tengua in particular, mm -hmm. and just the description in the appendices about the nature of the language, and it used all this terminology about different sounds. It talked about things like stops and fricatives and and, and labial sounds and all this kind of stuff, uh, which I found fascinating. The other thing that I looked back on and realized was instrumental in 
planting the seed of, of an interest in linguistics in me was uh, was text adventure games. Oh, yeah. So I was really big. So I, I was um, born in the early 70s. So um, I was, you know, my, my uh, most of my schooling was, was in the 80s. And um, at the time, I was uh, really, I had an Apple II uh, computer and absolutely loved text adventure games. These were the, you know, those games where you would type commands. I like, remember, I remember. Go north or get lamp or, <laughs> you know, put, put, pull sword from stone or whatever. <laughs> and of course, like, like many kids, and this is how I got into programming too, um, you know, many kids playing those games wanted to learn how to make games like that themselves. And as I started to try to find out more about how those kind of games work, I found out that there was all this, uh, you know, what I later discovered was, was linguistics behind them, that there was a, a list of words that it understood called a lexicon and that there was part of the software had to do with uh, looking at the sentence structure to find out what's the verb and what's the noun. And, and, and that kind of thing definitely along with the talking stuff planted the seed for me to um to end up becoming a, a linguist um but it turned out that um the kind of linguistics that i wanted to do and we'll get uh, i'll say more about this as we as we talk about uh philology and and how philology relates to linguistics and all that good stuff but one of the things that was interesting for me as a as a linguist uh, as an undergraduate student in linguistics anyway was um most of my interest was in dead languages i was interested in in greek um in particular at the time new testament greek um, and un unlike most of my fellow students who were studying uh, modern languages, um, of, you know, not, not, not French and Spanish and things like that necessarily, but things like the, the indigenous languages in Australia, um, they were all studying languages that had living speakers that they could go and, and talk to and, and interview and get a sense of how the language worked by talking to people. Of course, if you're studying languages from the past, uh, you don't have people you can talk to to really understand. The only thing you've got is texts themselves. And I was particularly interested in, well, how can I use computers to better understand the way that the language is being used in a particular text? And that ended up sort of getting me into um, this combination of linguistics and and computers as well and, and, and philology. That sounds amazing. Um, so so you, you mentioned all of this, um, you've mentioned philology several times. I mean, could, could you put a definition to it? I mean, which... Sure. <laughs> Actually, I probably, it's a, it's a difficult word to define. And so I'll, I'll, I'll try to sum it up, but also talk, give a little bit of history because it's, it's one of these words that's changed its meaning over time and it means different things in different places and different contexts. If, if I had to kind of sum it up in one sentence, it's really the study of old texts in old languages. Um, Roman Jakobsen, uh, who was a, a Slavic linguist and philologist, uh, also described it as the art of reading slowly. Uh, when, when, when applied to the, the Bible, it's often you know, called exegesis. It's that very, very careful, close studying of what does this word mean and why are the words in this order and, and, and that sort of stuff. Um, but, but historically, I mean, it go, 2,000 years ago, if you described yourself as a, as a, um, a philologer, that was actually an insult. You wouldn't oh. describe yourself <laughs> as one other. So you know, 2,000 years ago, philology was contrasted with 
with philosophy. And philology was the love of words, philosophy was the love of wisdom. And, you know, back then it was considered inferior to be focused on the words, it was much more important to be focused on wisdom. Um, but over time it sort of lost that pejorative sense and, and came, to be dis- uh, came to be used more informally to just describe somebody that had a love of, of words or literature and so on. Where it started to become an academic discipline uh, was in the 18th century uh, when a guy called Friedrich August Wolff uh, basically declared, he went to the University of Göttingen and declared his major, um, the equivalent thereof, uh, declared his major as, uh, as philology, which didn't exist at the time, but he said, no, that's what I want to study. And what he meant by it was in particular the study of the texts of, um, of ancient Greece and Rome. So studying Greek and Latin and the, the texts as a window to the history um, and culture of the time. So culture plays a big role in this, I'm, I'm guessing, and, and, and relationships maybe between, you know, the language you're studying and other languages? Yeah, so what happened was, so that was sort of the first, um, I guess, chapter in, in the in philology becoming an academic discipline. And to this day, when people describe themselves as, say, classical philologists or doing classical philology, they mean studying ancient Greek and, 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 and Latin, particularly in the context of the texts. Obviously, there are other sources of information um, about the culture of the time, um, such as archaeology and so on. Uh, but if you go to, um, uh, you know, for example, if you, if you wanted to study ancient Greek um, or Latin literature, at Harvard, uh, they call that classical philology at Harvard. Okay. Um, uh, but then, so another thing happened alongside this, which was, uh, that was happening in the 18th century, was this realisation, well, first of all, this realisation that there were other, realisation from people, from people in the West, obviously, it was known elsewhere, but this realisation that there were other cultures elsewhere in the world that also had rich literary traditions. <laughs> and in particular, uh, in, in India, um, this rich culture of, of texts written in Sanskrit, Sanskrit. And um, as people as people from the West started studying Sanskrit more, they realized that there were incredible similarities between Sanskrit, Greek, and Latin. And certain theories started to develop. And, and as people dived more and more into this, they started to become more and more interested in the relationship between these old, old languages. Um, and so philology also started to take on this sense of comparing languages and, and as a result, once it was realized that the reason these languages were related in their form that we could see in the texts was that they were actually descendants of, of the same language, mm. um, that they were cousins of one another. There was this real interest in studying the history of languages um, and how languages changed over time. And so to this day, the term comparative philology is used to mean studying the relationship between these old languages and their history. So not only what's the relationship between Sanskrit, Greek, and Latin, but also what's the history of, of English going back from, uh, you know, the well, the, sh- the shared ancestor with Greek and Latin, but going through to the, sh- the shared ancestor of, of just the Germanic languages, and then Old English, Middle English, and, and then uh, and then Modern English. And so philology started to also mean that sense of studying the history of the of the languages. Um, and when you want to contrast that with with just classical philology, you would often use the term um, comparative philology. And then the third thing, uh, just to kind of round out the the history of all this 
because this sets the stage for what's meant by philology nowadays. Um, there was this other movement, which was this realization that um, it wasn't just the ancient uh, written uh, stories from, from the Mediterranean that were of interest, but that all cultures had rich histories of sagas and epics and, and, uh, and folk tales and so on. And uh, Jakob Grimm, in particular, um, and his brother, were uh, really responsible um, within the, the Germanic sphere of collecting folktales and studying the relationship between folktales and the language behind them as well. Jakob Grimm um, was a comparative philologist that focused very much on the relationship between uh, the, the Germanic languages. Um, but you now get Germanic philology, uh, which is, is you know, studying those kind of relationships between uh, Gothic and Old Norse and Old English and so on, and the very texts in those those languages as well. So even to this day, um, when somebody describes themselves as a philologist, uh, they'll normally fall into one of the one or more of those kind of categories. So um, they'll either be somebody that's studying uh, you know, particular you know, ancient texts from two, two, two and a half thousand years ago, uh, whether they're Greek, Latin, or, or uh, in a Semitic language. Um, or, or uh, maybe slightly more recent um, Germanic languages, or, their, or the relationship between those languages. Um, all of that sort of goes under the name uh, philology in, in, in various uh, contexts. Well, can we can we get back to, to Tolkien for a second? Um, I, because I think that's a good segue. What, um, he was described as a professor of language and literature. What? Um, but but I know he also described himself as a philologist. What was Tolkien a philologist? Absolutely, and. He he, he was a philologist at a really interesting time for the for the term. Um, and one thing I haven't touched on yet, but it's relevant here, is that there was a bit of a negative reaction against the term philology uh, in the in the early twentieth century. Um, so Tolkien at Oxford, uh, you know, he actually started off studying uh, classics. Was his um, initially what he studied, and he had a very good command of of uh, Greek and Latin. Um, something that not a lot of people. Uh, necessarily know they think of him as focusing not more on on things like old english and old norse but he was perfectly <laughs> capable uh, uh with the greek and latin and so on um but then he started getting more into into uh the germanic philology the germanic languages so in the in the kind of comparative sense he studied old norse and, and gothic and and uh, and old english and the relationship between them and so on now at the time the real leaders in philology um were in germany and and um, most of the history, I mean, all, all of the people that I've mentioned, uh, Frederick August Wolff, um, Jakob Grimm, I didn't mention Franz Bopp, but he was another um, figure in the, the 18th and, and 19th century, who's probably the leading figure in comparative philology. They're all German. It was considered um, very much a, a, a German um, science. And when tensions arose and then eventually the outbreak of the, the Great War, that posed a bit of a problem in, in England. And many people of a more, uh, I'll say, literary bent. The many, many well-known names in English literature. People like J. M. Barrie, um, who wrote Peter Pan, Rudyard Kipling, um, and so on, felt that philology um, was was the enemy. Essentially, that mm. that philology was this horrible. Um, uh, 
intrusion that 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 German, German thinking had made into to English. Tolkien did not think that at all. He very much believed that the study of the literary side of the of the texts in English could be done alongside the the, the philological study of the languages themselves. And you know, so the, the term language and literature combined together really tried to capture that fact that he was both studying languages like Old English and, and Middle English um, as well as the literature in those languages. Hmm. Um, but there was definitely this feeling that um, of wanting to dissociate in, in English-speaking countries in particular uh, as a result or during and, and as a result of the First World War of, of not wanting to associate uh, too much with that particular approach to things uh, because it was seen as, as too German and, and obviously uh, Germany was not in, in favour at that, uh, that point in history. I just It sounds like such a strange thing to think about now where, you know, when you... It seems like if you want to understand the literature better, you you would you would study these sorts of things um, to to get to know it better. You know, to put yourself sort of inside the author and inside of the story. Doesn't that seem the same? Yeah, although I mean, it, it's absolutely and certainly you know my bias is towards that. I think some modern um, literary scholars would argue that you could go too far down that path, and and that that's not the only way to study a text. And I think one of the things that's happened um, much more recently in literary studies is a broader focus in things like uh, reception studies. So not focusing less on what did the author intend it to mean, but rather how has it been received by different people in different groups over time. Um, and so that kind of broadening of the study of the text, I think um, it's almost a pendulum that sort of swings back and forth and, and, and to correct what may have been seen as a uh, too much of a focus just on the the language and the words in the text itself um, may have been overcorrected and and to the detriment of of, uh, of philology. But you still see that. I mean, even today in in classics and classical philology, there are plenty of people interested in studying uh, the history of of ancient um, you know, ancient Mediterranean and so on that don't actually care particularly about say the texts. They care far more about um, archaeology or about. Um, and, and certainly not uh, literary texts. That's another, uh, I think, important point to make is that traditionally philology has sort of focused on the key texts. You know, Homer is the most important text in, in Greek. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Plato and Aristotle are the most important philosophers. Um, and so to the detriment of perhaps other other things. And so you could argue that there's this broadening that's been helpful to the field. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes that's been to the exclusion of, of, uh, of doing uh, philology as well. So it's always a, an interesting balancing act and, uh, as to where the focus is. Certainly my own focus it has always been on the language side of things, and Tolkien's was as well. Um, you know, he, and that's why he was, you know, I think, quite keen to describe himself always as a philologist to to remind people that at the end of the day, he was definitely interested in um, the individual words and the history of those words and and, and so on. Um, and, and I and I can I can see this I can see this love of of the languages of the elves and um and his his focus and his his passion for you know all of the different tribes of the elves the, the and the sundering of the elves and their migrations across the land and the, that really sort of comes across. Yeah, and it, I mean it's sometimes hard to tell how much of this was was sort of retroactive um, explanation, but it definitely feels 
to me, and I think Tolkien claimed this at various points, that much of that kind of history was set up in order to explain the kind of history of the languages that he wanted to do. Uh, okay, I see. So, in other words, if you take, well, I mean, just to take Quenya and, 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 and Sindarin, for example, I mean, it's clear that at one level he was trying to replicate what he saw as beautiful aspects of, of Finnish and Welsh, respectively. Right? So there's a ton of Finnish influence in, in, in Quenya and a ton of Welsh influence in Sindarin. But he wanted them to be related languages, which Finnish and, and Welsh are not. Right. Um, and yeah. so he constructed all these rules about how did the sounds change over time from this kind of single, uh, what, what, um, what comparative philologists or historical linguists would call uh, proto-Elvish, mm-hmm. um, how that over time broke up um, and you got two groups, one of which was speaking you know, one language and the, another was speaking another language. Of course, the moment you get that kind of linguistic history, the question arises, well, what was going on in terms of the people? Right. What was the history of the people that led to there being two separate groups? And that obviously leads nicely to, uh, to, the, to the sundering of the elves. Right, absolutely. I'd like to maybe fast forward um, 50, 100, um, 1,000 years from now. And, and, and the way we're talking about Tolkien st- studying the classic uh, languages, are, are people going to be studying Tolkien? Or are people studying Tolkien now in the same way? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, I certainly think that um, of all of the authors um, in the 20th century, the one that gets talked about the most like the way we talk about those ancient texts is is Tolkien. Um, and you know, I've, I, I've noticed that for many, many years, talking to biblical scholars, talking to classical philologists, um, many of whom are Tolkien fans, They'll say things like, you know, I've had many, many biblical scholars say to me, you know what, reading reading the Silmarillion kind of reminds me of the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah, from the very beginning. <laughs> right, exactly. And, you know, Tolkien's doing this deliberately, right? I mean, he had this uh, wonderful understanding of, of these things, these kinds of texts, and, and obviously uh, you know, brought a lot of that knowledge into his, his own writing. Um, and classicists as well, classical philologists will say to me, you know what, this reminds me a lot of, of, of what I do, um, you know, what I study in my day job. Um, you know, that's, that's a very different question, I think, than, say, literary merit or something like that, which, which I'm not in, in a really position to, to judge. So it's very d- difficult to say, obviously, um, what people will be interested in in, in 500, 1,000 years' time. Um, it's certainly the case that there have been many that predicted that Tolkien, people would lose interest in Tolkien already, and it hasn't happened. So, um, you know, there's definitely this, he, there's a certain staying power that he's already he's already uh, proven to have. So let, let me ask you, um, we're going to switch uh, gears to digital philology. Um, so we've, we've talked a lot, um, we've talked about almost 30 minutes about philology. Um, <laughs> what, um, what is, the, and, and digital philology seems, seems to be your thing. So, so tell us about that and, and, and what makes that different. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's funny. There's a lot of discussion in amongst people doing digital philology and more broadly um, the sort of parent field of digital humanities of of whether what it really means to put digital in front of that. Because all we're really describing um, is the particular tools that we're using to do what people have always done. 
Uh, and it's not like when um, the printing press was invented, we all of a sudden started, started talking about printing press philology or printing press humanities. Um, and then, you know, when the typewriter came along, we had typewriter philology. And, and so it, it, it. to some extent, it's kind of a, an odd phrase. But it, it, what it really refers to is um, the increasing use of, of uh, computers to undertake the, the philological endeavor. Um, and that's had, to, it really, so it, it goes back to probably um, one of the very first examples was in the 1940s, a Jesuit priest uh, by the name of Roberto Busa um, started putting together um, an index of um, the works of Thomas Aquinas. Mm. And he actually worked with IBM um, and, you know, doing this basically with mechanical sorting machines, not even, not even uh, you know, digital computers. Um, but this idea that you could do literary and linguistic analysis uh, with the help of tools uh, really started back then. Um, and for a little while, for a while, the subject was called literary and linguistic computing. Um, and that's really sort of what's often now referred to as, as digital philology. But it, it, at the end of the day, it has to do with using computers to, to do philological stuff. And, and that has two, I think, um, important benefits. Uh, one which is probably less important when applied to a small collection of text like Tolkien, but it's very important for in other areas, is the, the breadth and scale that using uh, digital tools enables. Mm -hmm. So if you're studying, you know, I said at the start, but the, the uh, Roman Jakobson quote about the art of reading, philology being the art of reading slowly. Um, if you're reading slowly, that makes it very difficult to say, compare a thousand novels at once. Mm -hmm. If you're wanting to study study how certain things have changed in 19th century novels and you want to actually study thousands and thousands of them, you're not going to be able to do that as, a, as an individual person. Digital philology can help a lot with that sort of stuff. And a lot of, a lot of studies have been done um, at sort of that level of um, it's what uh, is often referred to as distant reading as opposed to close reading, where instead of trying to get to what does this word mean and why are the words in this order, to take a much bigger step back and say, I want to compare how you know, compare 10,000 novels. I want to see how particular terms have changed in use over over decades or centuries and so on. And so that's one thing that it's a, that, that digital philology is enabled. Um, but I do think it has a lot of value, even in the sort of close reading, art of reading, slowly approach when you're dealing with limited texts, particularly in the area of, um, of improving accuracy, removing some of the, the tedium, I don't think it ultimately ever replaces the scholarship that needs to get done, but it does make certain things easier. It makes it less likely to make mistakes. And most importantly for me, um, it enables much easier collaboration between scholars who are wanting to work on a text. I think it's a lot easier with digital philological approaches to build on the work of others. So if somebody has done a certain analysis of a text, somebody else can come along and do more analyses that build on that foundation. Um, and I can give, I'll give a concrete example with, with, with Tolkien. You have two projects that you're working on. Actually, you have a ton of projects you're working on. But, <laughs> but, but two in particular, uh, the Digital Tolkien Project and the Perseus Digital Library. Do you want to talk about those? Sure. So actually, yeah, the Perseus Digital Library is a great way of sort of explaining this. So the Perseus Digital Library um, is, is sort of my main day job now. Um, I started getting involved, working with it uh, two years ago. Um, but the Perseus Digital Library actually was started in the 80s. 
uh, by Professor Gregory Crane at Tufts University here in Boston. And the, the vision, well, the early days of it were at Harvard and then when, when, uh, when uh, Professor Crane moved to Tufts, it, it moved there. But the, the basic idea of the Perseus Digital Library was to make the texts available, the texts that philologists were interested in, interested in studying, particularly um, classical philologists, uh, making them available electronically uh, for free mm-hmm. in, a, in an open way that enabled um, you know, people to use those those texts unencumbered. Um, and it's gone through various technology shifts. Um, when it first started, you know, it, it, the text sat on a particular machine that that if you wanted you know, work done, you would have to go to the machine. Uh, it was it was then released on on CD ROM um, when CD ROM was the leading technology for the distribution of this kind of information, and then ultimately it got put on web. And so to this day, the Perseus Digital Library is probably the leading um, website for um, getting uh, open, uh, freely available uh, texts of, of ancient Greek and, and Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, but then building on top of that, there's all sorts, of, it's not just the texts themselves, there's all sorts of things you could start to do with those texts, and, and scholars have done that. And so one of the things that's, that's very important uh, for, for classical philologists is an understanding of, of the people and places that get mentioned in the text. And so if you go through a text and you identify every time that certain people are mentioned, uh, there's a scholarly task as well of disambiguating because there's lots of people with the same names in texts often. So, so one of the examples that, that I talked with uh, about Fiona was this, this concept of how elves name people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know, there's the, the sort of the, the matronymic name, the, um, right. you know, there's, yep. the, there's the nicknames, there's the, um, and so, so maybe Galadriel, we used her as an example a lot like maybe you you know all the different ways she's mentioned the pronouns involved with her would that, exactly. be, would that be a good example absolutely right so if you were wanting to do a study of that um you could manually do it obviously um but if you wanted to then convey that information to someone else in a way that they could maybe do a slightly different analysis it would be really helpful if what you had done is gone through the text and marked up all the places where some name of Gladrill is used. So in the old-fashioned days, markup meant, you know, underlining it with a pen or something or a highlighter or something. Um, But in the digital world, you can actually represent some, you know, digitally where in the text these things are occurring. Now, say, say somebody has done that task, right? They've gone through and they've identified all the names and they've identified who they're referring to in the case where, where the same entity ha- has multiple names. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine somebody else, completely independently, is interested in the way that different races in Middle Earth um, or different races, uh, different tribes in, in, in ancient Greece or, or, or different characters in Shakespeare, it doesn't matter what it is, how they, how they use language differently. Right? This is a very common thing for uh, digital philologists to want to study. And in fact, going back to one of, one of the earliest digital philology projects, I was studying um, the way that different characters spoke in Jane Austen novels, depending on whether they were male or female. <laughs> so it was one of the very first things that done was to go through the text and identify for every single spoken passage, is this being spoken by, or who's it being spoken by, and then are they a male or female, and then be able to do some interesting statistical analyses of, of differences in um, in the way that males and females speak in, in Jane Austen. But imagine you did that for, for Tolkien. So you went through, and I say this in part because this, this is actually something I am doing, is going through and, and, and marking up 
Who said exactly what? These, this, this sentence was spoken by Gandalf. This sentence was 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 spoken um, by Celeborn, and so on. And then once you map that to certain information about the the, the people, the characters, um, then you can start to do interesting analyses about do hobbits speak differently um, than elves? Do does Sam speak differently than than Frodo? Um, but now, now imagine you wanted to combine those two, right? You've got all these different names of Galadriel or any other elf or even other, uh, you know, uh, hobbits and humans and so on will, will, will have multiple names. Uh, you know, Aragorn has, has many, many names. Um, Sauron has many names as well. But imagine you wanted to do a study of whether, whether which name got used depended on who was speaking. Are hobbits more likely to use a particular name than, than dwarves, than elves? Than, than the humans and, or, or so on. Um, well, if you if somebody had gone and marked up all these names and who they referred to, and somebody else has gone and marked up all the speech who was speaking, then you can, if they're in digital form, you can combine those two results to do some new research about the relationship between names and and uh, and who uses them. All right, I have so many questions. All right, um, <laughs> I, I, but, but just to, just to um, sum up, so that that's an example of something that. That is a very close, detailed philological study that would be very, very difficult to do manually, um, and particularly collaboratively manually. Uh, doing it digitally means it's much easier for people to combine the results of others. So, so are you in your, you know, lots of free time that you have? Uh, <laughs> are, are you sitting down and rereading The Hobbit a hundred times for each of these things that you that you want to catalog? I mean, how how does one go about cataloging something like this? So the approach that I'm taking, and this is a very common technique in, in all sorts of things that I've done over the, the decades with different texts, is trying to write computer software that does the first step and then continue to iterate on that and correct it when it's doing the wrong thing. It's, it's always going to require a certain level of human decision-making, um, but there are certain things that can be done to, to speed up and simplify the process. So in, in terms of the speech stuff, for example, uh, the first thing that I did, um, well, actually, the second thing that I did, I'll say the first thing in a moment, but the second thing I did was um, write a computer program that can just find the direct speech. So based on open quotation marks, closed quotation marks, find find the um, find the, the direct speech. Mm -hmm. Now, the first thing I had to do before that, and I'll, uh, you'll see in a moment why that's important, is to make sure that that's actually the way that direct speech was always um, re referred to as. Um, and it's not just as simple as, oh, we look for an open quotation mark to indicate the start and we look for a closed quotation mark to indicate the end. Because there's no difference between um, visually between a closed quotation mark indicating that what somebody said has ended and um, an apostrophe that's ending a, a, a plural possessive. And then the, the end result of that work is I, I, I then have, have marked up all of the, the sort of start and end points of, of the direct speech. And then there's the interesting task of, of then working out who's doing the, the speaking. And again, there's a certain amount of automation you can do there. Obviously, if it's some part of speech said Gandalf, then you know right. it's Gandalf saying it. Right. Um, if, if it said, you know, a certain amount of speech he said, then you've got to work out who he is, um, which is actually another useful task to do, um, quite apart from speech, is going through all the pronouns and working out who they're referring to. Um, so yes, there's a certain amount of manual work. Um, computers are getting increasingly better at some of these tasks. 
particularly things like uh, the reference re co-reference resolution, which is the term for working out what who he is and who she is. Mm -hmm. um, what's the reference elsewhere in the text that, that it's referring to? Computers are getting better and better at doing that, and a lot of work is being done in, in that area. Um, still, at the end of the day, it's going to require people checking stuff, uh, which is why collaboration is, is an important aspect of all this. Uh, because it is a, it, there is still definitely that very, very careful, slow uh, reading that uh, that Roman Jakobson talked about um, in in all of these these kinds of uh, endeavors. So, so I have um, two quick questions that I can kind of smush together because I think they're probably related. And, and the first thing that I wanted to know, of course, and I, I know our listeners are going to want to know, is where do I access this information that, that, that you've cataloged? And 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 number two, and I. I think it's related, and you touched on it in your in your talk um, at New England Moot. Um, was the whole licensing piece of this right? Yeah, and th and that's what makes that's what makes this particularly difficult and 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 sort of currently impossible to answer that that first question. Yeah. So obviously, if you're dealing with a work that's out of copyright, um, it's very easy to share this information, and so that's what happens with these classical texts when people do what I just described for. For something like Homer or Herodotus, it's very easy to, to share it with people. It's very easy for me to then make it available on, on in the Perseus Digital Library. Um, it's not legal for me to, to make it available uh, in the case of stuff that I do um, with, with the text of talking because they're still under copyright. Now, there are a couple of solutions um, to that. Um, one is that, well, the main, the main solution is to assume that you have the same text that I do um, and, and to convey my analysis in terms of uh, sort of offsets into the text. So in other words, instead of giving you, a t instead of giving you the chapter um, Farewell to Lorien marked up with who's doing the talking, I instead say, I instead give you a file that says, in Farewell to Lorien, words 11 through 15 are spoken by Kellogg. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's possible sort of to reconstruct at your end um, the marked up text without us interchanging anything that reveals. It's almost like a, a code right, that we're not wanting to reveal. Right. Uh, we, we can transmit information but without revealing uh, the, the, the full message. Um, and that's, that's referred to as standoff markup um, because you're not actually marking up in the text. You're, you're, you're sort of standing off from the, standing away from the, the, the text and, and, and doing it that way. That's, that's really the way that it has to be done at the moment. For certain things, I can convey information without um, it giving away the text at all. Um, and that's, that's certainly possible. Like if you just asked me a question like how many words are spoken by Frodo in, in Lord of the Rings um, or even by chapter or something like that. Um, once I've finished the current task that I'm doing, that's a question I could answer and I could freely answer that because that's not giving away any of the... Right, right. I've, I've actually, I've seen some of those posts from the Digital Tolkien Project on Twitter. You have answered some of those questions already. Yeah. As I've found stuff, I, you know, I've done, run various statistics and so on and, and, and shared that information. Um, so there's no problem with that. Um, I mean, ultimately, I think the only solution, uh, I, I would love to see a situation where scholars that are working on, on the texts um, can enter into an agreement with the, the publisher and the Tolkien estate um, where a certain licensing fee or, or subscription or something is, is paid to, to the publisher and, and estate. 
um, in order to enable that kind of interchange with others that have have um, have subscribed and, and and paid that licensing fee. I think that's probably the only feasible way for it to happen. But what about what, what about just waiting a certain amount of time? I mean, isn't there a isn't there a, a rule in the law, the copyright law, that says? So if if we assume that the copyright law doesn't change, um, and it's possible it could change and and prolong uh, extend those times even longer. If it just stays the same as it currently is, um, I I think I worked out once that I'll be well into my seventies before <laughs> I can even do the first of the texts. Um, so it's <laughs> I mean it'll be great it'll be great for uh, you know future generations perhaps, but um, but not possible anytime soon. So so um, I, we, I've I've kept you for almost fifty minutes. So just a few other uh, hopefully short questions. But um, I, again, we could probably be here all night talking about this stuff. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about um, any collaborators that you might have for the Digital Token Project or um, or, or to, to, you know, to put something out there um, as a message that you're looking for collaborators. Uh, yeah, so there's really two, I think, two types of, of collaborations um, that, that make sense and that I'm interested in. One is the, peop- the, the Tolkien scholars who don't necessarily have um, the, the skills or focus on the digital side, um, but they have particular research questions that I would love answered. So somebody that, that is interested in, for example, do different races in Lord of the Rings, uh, use different words or different names for people or, or so on, that, that kind of research question, um, I would love to hear from people like that and collaborate with them on getting them the, the, the results they need. Um, the second category of collaborator is people that are, are actually uh, sort of working in the field of digital philology of doing uh, this sort of uh, literary and linguistic um, computing already, uh, maybe for other texts, and would be interested in applying the same techniques that, that they're using for other texts to talking. Um, so it's really both of those people I'm, I'm very interested in talking to. Um, I've already been working with with a handful of people, uh, most mostly in the the second category. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of <laughs> a funny story. Um, one um, a lady that I'm working with, uh, her expertise in, um, in uh, she's a classical philologist, but her her expertise is in geospatial descriptions in ancient texts. So in other words, when a text describes the relationship between places, mm-hmm. how how can you extract from that text what the what the relationship is um you know a passage might mention that one town is is a day's walk from another um or or that that something is, I'm, I'm i'm going to travel up up to such and such and how do how does the text relate to what's actually going on going on geographically i approached her saying i would really love to apply this to talking and it turns out she was a huge talking fan oh. and wanted to do that anyway boy I, I would have loved to have that kind of information you know um I, we you and i have talked and and, and and the whole point of this podcast is is to talk about um, a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. From a very the very first thing that I did was, was to sit down with a map and to pace this thing. You know, how far can they travel during during any particular day? What is traveling yep. through the mountains like? What is traveling through Mirkwood? You know, like I am curious now that now that we've mentioned this Dungeons and Dragons bit, are you a Dungeons and Dragons player? I have not played for a while, but. I, I certainly have been for, for at various points in my life, and and in fact, when I first started getting into, it, um, it was the first edition of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Oh wow! Yes, um, was pretty much around the same time as I, I was getting into Tolkien. 
So um, I remember buying, so I bought the Player's Handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide uh, in 1985, um, the AD&D first edition ones of, of those, um, in 1985, which was also the year that um, um, I was given as a present um, Return of the King before I'd read the other other two um, books in Lord of the Rings um, and didn't want to spoil things by reading the story, so I just read the appendices. But anyway, that, that happened. Me, me, I was a Hobbit fan and, and my aunt bought me Return of the King. Um, that was in 1985 as well. So they're very much the same part of uh, phase of my life that I, I got into both. Um, for, for all through um, well, early high school, I, I DM'd a lot. Um, and then later on at various points, I played in, in various campaigns uh, just as a, as a player character. Sure, sure. Well, that's, uh, you know, for so many people, Dungeons and Dragons was that, uh, was the gateway drug. Or, or, or in fact, Tolkien was probably the gateway drug <laughs> to, to Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, well, at this point in the campaign, the, the characters are uh, are in near Erisea. Um, they're traveling through the, uh, the shadowy seas, the enchanted isles, and they're coming to the Tower of Pearl. There's this phrase um, that is mentioned, I think, just maybe once, maybe a handful of times, called the sleeper in the Tower of Pearl. Um, and in, in, in this, in my campaign, the sleeper is Turin Turnbar. Um, so, so of course, he is buried on Tol Morrowin back on Middle Earth. But this portal in the Tower of Pearl is what takes these 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 people, uh, these characters, to um, the Stone of the Hapless. <laughs> yep. Um, and so, and so that was that was. Um, I, I had never read anything quite like the the Book of Lost Tales. And that, that actually was leading me to my next question is that, um, ha have you, I know you're a big Silmarillion fan and you've done a lot of studies there. I've seen those posts on Twitter. Uh, and I, you know, I know how much you love the Hobbit and you've talked about the Lord of the Rings. Have you, have you gotten to any of the books, the histories of Middle Earth? Uh, not digitally yet. Okay. Although I, I, so I, um, I, I read them very early on. <laughs> I'm probably one of the very, very few people on the planet who read large sections of the history of Middle Earth before I read Lord of the Rings. Um, my my reading order is very very odd, but I it, it was basically the Hobbit, then the Lord of the Rings appendices, <laughs> then then the Silmarillion, um, and, and then the History of Middle Earth or bits of the History of Middle Earth. I became really obsessed with the Ina Lindelay, oh, yeah. and and so grabbed all of the copies, all of the volumes of History of Middle Earth that had anything to do with versions of the Ina Lindelay, so Shaping of Middle Earth Volume Four and, and so on. So I, I I'm certainly very um, familiar with them, but I've not done anything digitally with them. Yet, I think they will lend themselves to uh, digital tooling um, probably more than anything else because this is this is a common theme in in, um, in a lot of what I do. There's certain there's certain information, certain data, certain results of philological study that is where books are not necessarily the best way to present the, the end result. Mm -hmm. the, the books are actually limiting. And I think that's most clear in something like the, the histories, the various volumes of the history of Middle Earth. Yeah. Um, you know, Christopher Tolkien did all this amazing work in terms of relationships between manuscripts, changes to manuscripts, and so on. And then he had to convey it in a in a very traditional uh, philological form, namely namely a book where you've got you know text that may have some annotations where words were changed. It's got lots of notes and commentaries and stuff like that. But one of the things that, for example, gets done with um, with other with his you know, old texts 
um, in a similar situation where you have multiple versions of the manuscript is you can do all sorts of cool things online where you can visualize where the changes are or be able to very quickly switch between different versions. Show me what version A looked like. Show me what version B looked like. Mm -hmm. Show me what the differences between A and B were um, and all those sorts of things that are only possible um, in, a, in a digital reading environment, not in a book. And so I think I mean, there's amazing things that would be possible if, um, if, <laughs> if I was allowed... If, I mean, I would love to, you know, work with with um, with HarperCollins and the, the Tolkien Estate to make some of that sort of stuff more richly available online, um, because I just think there's there's so much good philological material in those books. Because as I said, Christopher um, Tolkien is the Tolkien philologist uh, par, par excellence. He, he he really is the um, the person that far and away um, has done the most philological work on on uh, on JRR. Well, I, I, is the, I hope the Tolkien estate is listening to this podcast, <laughs> and, and I hope we can make that happen for you. But um, I'm going to let you go. It's about an hour into this, but I, before we go, uh, is there? Uh, I want you to, to plug anything that's coming up for you, any presentations or publications that are coming out, and I want you to let everybody know where they can find you online. Yeah, so um, nothing in, in terms of stuff coming up, I think there's, it's mostly going to be um, a bunch of blog posts and stuff. So uh, Digital Tolkien. Um, dot com is the home of, of all my, my Tolkien stuff. Um, so definitely go there if you're interested in, in the, the Tolkien stuff. If you're interested more broadly in the digital philology that I do with things like ancient Greek, um, then go to jktauber.com. Um, and yeah, that pretty much uh, covers... Uh, two major major interests of mine <laughs> and you can follow my stuff there well, well thank you so much James my pleasure thank you very much for having me though this marks the end of the episode the road goes ever on until next time join us at longwinded.one and consider giving us a review on Apple Music Spotify or really whichever platform you choose <laughs> <laughs>